So we are starting a brand new sermon series this morning that we have called Why Church? And what we're going to be talking about is talking about the church, not in a local level like Lover's Lane, but in a broader sense of the church in sort of a universal, general sense. And why the church is, is necessary and relevant and transformative even as it changes in this 21st century. So if you follow um, churches or the general state of the church, if you're a church nerd uh, like myself, first of all, let's be friends. We'll have a lot to talk about. Um, but if you do follow that kind of stuff, then you know that there's a lot of conversation about the changing nature of the church, that there's sort of this sense that we're going through maybe a second reformation or something. There's every several hundred years, there's this sort of big shift that happens happens in the church. You know, in the, in the year 300 or so, it was this big shift when Constantine became a Christian, and all of a sudden the church was no longer oppressed by the state, but supported by the state. That was a monumental shift. And then the Reformation, when Martin Luther uh, started this movement to sort of, that ended up breaking away from the Catholic Church, that was a monumental shift and led to all the Protestant denominations that we have today. And today, as culture continues to change, and that landscape continues to change, and we notice that we're living in a culture that seems seems to not be as tied to the church as it once was, when people don't feel compelled to go to church like they once did, when there's not sort of this culture of Christianity pervading everywhere, uh, we notice that the church might have to look a little bit differently to reach a new generation and certainly the generations to come. And so uh, the one thing that I want to make clear is that, you know, we here at Lover's Lane, and me personally as a pastor, I don't believe the church is dying. Even though we see metrics and numbers that are sort of doing this, um, I don't believe the church is dying. I believe the church is changing. And I would argue that the church is actually, in a way, returning to the practices and the mentalities and the theologies of what guided and instructed the early ancient Christian church um, that was led by Paul and Peter and what we read about in the New Testament. Uh, I think we've been living in a, in a long era where it's been really easy to be a Christian, all things considered, because the general idea was you go to church and you believe in Jesus. And now we're going to be living in a culture that that's not necessarily true, where there's not a pressure to go back to church after you leave college or start a family, where we're going to begin seeing more and more politicians who don't feel compelled to run as though they have a faith because they really don't. Um, and so what does the church do when it lives in a culture like that? Well, I think it'd be important for us to learn from uh, the teachings of Jesus and the instructions of the early church because that's exactly the kind of culture that they lived in. Um, a culture that, while at times hostile, many times was just kind of ambivalent. They didn't really think much about Christianity or the church at all. So today I want us to scratch the itch on, on one specific question, because I think it's a really core, important question for us to discuss as we talk about the church in the next generations. Um, and I think it's going to be a core, central pillar of who the church has to be. And the question I want us to wrestle with today is this, how does Christ expect the church to respond to need? How does, the, how does Christ expect the church to respond to need? Because I think that we've gotten this right in some ways in the past, and I think we've gotten it wrong in other ways, and I think if we want to be a church that reaches uh, the next generation of, of people growing up in a culture that don't feel compelled to go to church, then we've got to be able to answer this question really, really well. Because if there's one thing that everybody knows, whether you're inside or outside of a church, is that there is a lot of need in the world today. And so what is the church going to do about it? What does Christ ask us to do about that? 
And to help us with this conversation, we're going to look at a scripture that comes from the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 25. This comes at the very end of Jesus' teaching in Matthew. It's right before the passion narrative that, you know, where he's taken in by the authorities and crucified and, and all that sort of ending climactic moment. It, it, it's right before that. This is the very last thing he chooses to teach on. And he, and he teaches in a really, really sort of pointed, direct, and even almost a little bit threatening of a way, which is interesting. Um, it's also one of the very few times that Jesus speaks directly about heaven and hell and eternal life and about who might be in and who might be out. Uh, so it's a fascinating text. It's a, and honestly, it's a passage in the scripture that, that it's a scripture in the, in the Bible that, that we could do a whole series on just by itself. There's a lot here. And so we're going to do our best to, to hit the high notes this morning. Okay. Are y'all ready to go with me? Let's pray before we read the scripture this morning and ask God to be a part of this moment. God, we, uh, we want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to come to this church this morning, to come into these walls, into this space that for most of us feels like home, and some of us may be walking in for the very first time. God, we want to give you thanks for uh, creating an, an institution, not a brick-and-mortar building, but a, an organism, a organization, a collection, a community called the church, because you know that even though it's going to go through changes and twists and turns and highs and lows, that there is something about the church that our world needs, and if we would listen to you, if we would receive from you a vision for who the church could be, for why the church is important and why the church does matter. If we could receive that vision and that hope from you, my God, the work that we could do here for your kingdom. So God, help these words leap off the screens, off the pages of our Bibles, into our hearts that they might change the way that we live. In your sons we pray. Amen. So we're going to read the whole passage and then we're going to go back and sort of uh, walk through it together, a few portions that I think are really, really important for us this morning. So just buckle up. This is a, this is a little bit longer of a, of, a, of a passage, but it's good. So let's start in verse 31. When the Son of Man, I don't know that we have, yeah, there we go, good. Okay, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So Jesus is sort of talking about this end time kind of day of judgment kind of scenario, right? Uh, and he says this, all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And if you're already wondering, Scott, what are sheep and goats about? I'm not going to address it at all today. It's like a whole other sermon. So sorry, go read a study Bible, I guess. That's my answer for you. Uh, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous, those at his right hand, will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you, in, saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it for one of the least of those, these who are members of my family, you did it 
to me. And then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you. And he will say to them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, right? Wow, you're like, this is, this is a tougher scripture from Jesus. This is one of those challenging texts. There are times when Jesus starts to talk, and you know that someone in the crowd is like, stop talking, stop talking, stop. I like to all that stuff about like being nice and loving your neighbor. Now we're like, and you who are accursed, you will go into the fire for the devil. You're like, whoa, Jesus, whoa, calm down. So let's talk about this. This is the way that Matthew chooses to end, teaches, end telling the story of Jesus as a teacher. This is the final note that Matthew includes in his gospel. So clearly, Matthew's gospel thinks this is an important text, and we should too. So let's go back to verse 31. I'm sorry, let's go back to verse 35. Uh, this is when uh, Jesus first starts uh, talking about um, the, the litany of when I was hungry and you gave me food. So let's... <laughs> Oh, excuse me, that was a weird sound. Um, like, you ever like swallow half your throat at once? That was cool. Um, so Jesus says this, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. So to understand the gospel of Matthew, we have to understand this dynamic between the Pharisees and um, the other poor, oppressed people living in, uh, in Judaism in Jerusalem and in Israel. Um, because the Pharisees were these religiously powerful people. They were religious and societal elite people. They were wealthy. They were powerful. They controlled the religion, which that meant they controlled the, the culture and the society where they lived. And, and, you know, if you go back and you read Old Testament uh, Judaism, if you go back and read where this faith comes out of, it was b- built out of a lot of what Jesus is talking about right here. It's built upon care for the widow and the orphan. It's built upon care for the poor and the oppressed. If you go old school, Old Testament, that's where this faith begins. But over time, people get a sense of power. They get a taste of power. They get a taste of wealth. And people that get taste of power and wealth sometimes react poorly to that. And they want a little bit more and a little bit more. And they don't want to give it up. And they don't want to give it up. And eventually what you end up with in the church is a small group of people who were in charge. And then a larger group of people who are not. And the small group of people who are wealthy and in charge get to tell the large group of people who are not, if you want to go to where we're going, if you want to go to heaven, because Lord knows we're going there, right? If you want to go there, then you have to do what we tell you to. You have to buy the sacrifices that we're selling to you. You have to make sure that you show up to temple when we tell you to and give your money the way that we tell you to. And if you don't, then sorry. I guess you don't get to come in. And the Pharisees, while looking at this, even though they have this faith that's built upon this idea of care for the oppressed and care for the poor and care for the widow and orphan, they were masters at at legalism. They were masters at, at following the letter of the law and not the spirit of it. And they would find all sorts of ways and reasons to get out of their call to help. 
They were really good at figuring out ways to not respond to the needs around them. Because there was a lot of need in this land at this time. Israel was conquered by the Roman Empire, right? They were, they were a people serving a larger empire, and they were taxed heavily, and they had, uh, you know, governors that were chosen by Rome who were Jewish people who were then taxing their own people even more. I mean, there was a lot of poverty and oppression and a lot of need, and the Pharisees were really good. If you read the Gospels, they're really good at, at weaseling their way out of this call to care. And so I find it fascinating that Jesus chooses in his final teaching to sort of call them back to this real basic tenet of what Judaism was supposed to be about in the very first place. And what Jesus does in the Gospels that he sort of puts a big exclamation point here is he develops this theology of being really, really attuned to the present. Because I think he knows that most of the time the way we get out of helping somebody who's right in front of us and needs our help is we try to sort of divorce ourselves from the present. We try to remove ourselves from that present need and we start to say, well, you know, I mean, what would it really do? Well, the problem's bigger than just this. I would give money to the guy on the corner, but, you know, what would he really spend it on? You know, or I would try to help with this, but, you know, it's just such a big issue. What's one person really going to do to change anything, right? And what Jesus calls us back to in the Gospels and what he puts an exclamation point here is that there is something about faith that calls us to be radically aware of the present. And in terms of the way that we respond to need, there is something about faith that calls us to be radically aware of the needs of the present. Notice he doesn't say, I was hungry, and so you established a food pantry that was going to annihilate systemic uh, food uh, deserts in your community, and so over the course of the next 150 years, you solved my problem. That's not what he says. He didn't say, I was naked, and so you helped to invest in my local economy, and then over time, jobs were created, and then I was able to earn a living wage, and then I was able to buy my own clothes. And I'm not trying to discount the importance of addressing systemic injustice or systemic poverty or systemic oppression. Those things are important and right and good pursuits, but Jesus also says there are times when someone is going to appear before you and all they need is a bite of food, a jacket to wear, something in their belly, a drink of water, someone to welcome them in, someone to visit them when they're sick, someone to visit them when they're in prison. And the life of faith calls us to be radically aware of the present, to not look away and to say, yes, I see this person. And not only do I see this person, I see Christ in this person. And I'm going to do what I can, while I can, and when I can. And it means that we have to sacrifice our excuses. See, I think if the church is dying, here's what a dead church looks like. A dead church finds excuses not to help. It's too big of an issue. What can we do about it anyways? You know, what are they really going to do with it? Do they even really need our help? We find excuses like the Pharisees, but a Jesus-centered church, the church I think God is calling us to be as we move forward, is a church that responds in the present, that responds to to the needs of our community and our neighbors in the present. Let's keep moving. So picking up in verse 37, Jesus says this. Then the righteous will answer him, 
Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you in, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Now this is an interesting text. I want to spend a little bit of time here. Um, it's, Jesus says that there are these people, the righteous, right? These are all the sheep who've been separated onto the right hand. These are all the people who are going off to eternal bliss and, and heavenly reward. He says the righteous don't know that they're righteous. In fact, the righteous say, Lord, when was it that we ever served you? I don't remember welcoming you in. I don't remember giving you food. I don't remember giving you water. I don't remember visiting you while you were sick and in prison, what do, you, what do you mean I've been serving you this whole time? I think that's kind of interesting, right? That here's this whole group of people who God is calling righteous, who God is saying lived in service of me, who's, who God is saying who lived by this immense faith and who did exactly what I wanted them to do, who lived, lived out their beliefs, and yet they're totally unaware that they did this. Again, this passage is kind of an exclamation point in the larger uh, narrative of Matthew's gospel. And one thing I love about how Jesus teaches is he does this really interesting thing where he plays around with the idea of faith and the idea of action. And he kind of blurs the two together. He kind of mushes them together so you can't quite tell the difference. He says things like, well, you know a tree by its fruit. If you say you're an apple tree, then you're going to bear apples. If you say you're a pear tree, you're going to bear prayers. If you say that's an apple tree, but there's pears on it, guess what? It's not an apple tree, right? He does this interesting stuff where he sort of blurs the line between faith and action. And I think he does this in kind of a subversive way. Because remember those Pharisees I talked about. Matthew's all about this Pharisee, non-Pharisee dynamic. And the Pharisees like to blend the line between faith and action as well, but in a way that was always designed to exclude because the way they would blur it would be to say, if you don't do what we tell you to, then you're going to hell. I mean, it doesn't matter what you think. If you don't come here and buy a dove to sacrifice at the temple, then sorry, chief, you're not getting in. Because ultimately, it's about check, this, this checklist that, that we've got that we think if you check all these marks off, then you get to come into heaven like we do. And that's not meant to get more people in. That's actually meant to keep more people out, Right? When you blur faith and action in that kind of way, it's meant to exclude people from the table, not to invite them in. And Jesus does it, though, in a way that's actually meant to include, because here we've got a whole group of righteous people who Jesus says don't even know that they're living by faith. Jesus says if you have faith, then there's something about the way that you live that's going to exemplify that. that it's not that our actions determine whether we go to heaven or hell. It's not that our actions are what get us in. We believe that it's the faith in God that gets us into heaven, right? It's, it, we believe that we're saved by our faith, not by own, our own works. But Jesus would say, but, and it's a really big but, but your actions can reveal the state of your faith. If you say you have faith, but your actions don't display that, well, then you're trying to say you're an apple tree, but all I see is pears, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, he would have said nearly the same thing where in the moment of faith, immediately, immediately, 
faithful works would be happening as well. Because if you say you have faith and it doesn't change your life, then do you really have the faith that you think you do? I'm going somewhere with this. Now, this is interesting when you, when you sort of take that view and, and look at this text that we're looking at right now. One of the most common questions I get from people as a pastor, because we live in a world that's radically different than it was you know, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, certainly 100 years ago. The question I get is this, Scott, what about my Muslim friend? What about my atheist friend? What about my Jewish friend? You sure I'm going with this? Are they all just going to hell because they didn't believe in Jesus? Because they didn't go down in front of church and get baptized and say, I believe in Jesus? What happens to them? And when I hear that question, what I hear underneath that question is this sort of, they don't say it this way, but I think what they want to say if they didn't think they were sitting in front of a pastor and it scared them so much is, if God's going to send my Muslim and atheist and Jewish friend to hell, I don't think I want to believe in that kind of a God. I think that's sort of the deeper question that's sitting there. They don't walk in my office and say that. Although I wish they would. I wish people would be more honest with their pastors about their fears and their frustrations. So I look at this scripture as an, as an answer in part to that question. And this might be a spot where I lose some of you, but stay with me. So I think that Jesus does a lot of work in the Gospels to redefine what it means to have faith. And I think what the, the work that he does in the Gospels is try to make us stop thinking of faith as some sort of routine or some sort of thought process that we have to get right. That faith is about thinking the right way. Or that faith is about going to church and saying the right things. When really I think Jesus is trying to make us realize that faith is much more tactile and tangible than that. That there is something about our hands and our feet and our lives that live out our faith for us. And that when we examine our own actions, we get to sort of see what kind of state our faith really is in. And so the question about what, my, what about my Muslim friend or my atheist friend or my Jewish friend? Because here's the problem I have that, with that question. If I was born in Yemen... I would be an imam. If I was born in Jerusalem, I'd probably be a rabbi. If I was born 25, 30 years later, I might be an atheist. And yet Jesus is talking about this end time vision where there's this whole group of people who are righteous and who God says, you've been serving me your, your whole life. And they say, when? And he points to these actions, these faithful actions that they've been taking all their life long. What I want to say is this, perhaps there are people in our world who have a faith that they cannot articulate, a faith that they're not even aware how deep it is, a faith in Jesus that they would never be able to walk forward in church because of reasons of geographical or cultural or whatever, but maybe they have a faith that they're not even aware of. Maybe faith is more than just showing up into a building, saying the right words, getting some water on your head, and then going about your life like nothing changed. Like I said, you can disagree with me, but I think that this scripture opens up an interesting possibility because I think when Jesus blurs those lines between faith and action, it's meant to include more people at the table to say, look, there's a lot of people out there who are living by faith in me that may not even be aware of it. Because when God gathers them at the end and says, thank you for living and serving my name, they go, when was that? When did I do that? I don't remember being a Christian. A dead church connects faith and action to exclude. 
think there's a lot of churches that are going to be experiencing dying pains over the next 50 to 100 years because they have placed their bets, like the Pharisees, on a church and on a theology that says, if you don't meet this checklist, then you're out. And that checklist is too long for anybody. So guess what happens? Eventually, everybody's out. But I think a Jesus-centered church blends faith and action in a way that invites people to the table so that when I meet with people who are new to the church, who are asking me those kinds of questions, who don't believe that they're Christian, and I talk to them about how they live their life and why they live their life, and what they're saying is they're talking about feeding the hungry and giving water to the thirsty and putting clothes on the back of the naked and visiting people while they're sick or in prison. They're giving me that, that, that list of faithful actions. And I said, well, let me tell you about Jesus because I think you're living by the teachings of Christ. I think there's a lot of people in this world who don't realize how Christian they are. Is anybody with me? Amen? Do you know somebody in your life who's more Christian than they realize? And so I think our job as the church is to help them to articulate that faith. Not because I think that standing up and saying the right words is like a magic word that gets you through the open sesame door, but because I think once we can begin to articulate our faith, it takes us on a path to discipleship that leads to a more meaningful life. All right, I'm going to keep moving. Matthew 25, 41 through 46. It's the fun part. You knew we were going to get here. Then he will say to those in his left hand, you that are cursed, depart from me into the eternal fire and prepared for the devil and his angels. So every time you want to make Jesus out to be some like peaceful little lamb all the time, like I want to point you back to this. Like Jesus sometimes keeps it real, right? Uh, this is like turning temples in the, or turning tables in the temple kind of Jesus. He says, you're going into the fire with the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me in. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? When was this, God? Then he will say, he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it for one of the least of these for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. One quote that I really love, and I was trying my best to figure out who said it first, and I can't figure out if it was Reggie McNeil or Ed Stetzer. Both of them are like church, like general church kind of gurus. And they've both said it in different interviews and settings, and I can't figure out which one of them said it first, but it was one of them, Reggie McNeil or Ed Stetzer. They said this, it's not that the church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. I want to say that again because it's profound, and it, it affects the way that we view the church. It's not that the church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. I, say, I bring that up to say this. Jesus is putting three exclamation points down on this point. Is that if we truly have faith, we're going to live in a way that becomes the gospel to the world around us. And not just for the people that we like or the people that are convenient, or the people that we want to have as part of the church, the people who look like us, sound like us, make us feel better about ourselves. Jesus is putting three big exclamation points on this fact. If we say we have faith, then that means we have to become the gospel. We have to become the incarnate mission of God in the world around us, especially for the people that we don't really like. Jesus says, just as you did not do it for the 
least of these, you did not do it for me. He doesn't say just as you did not do this for your friends or for your neighbor. He says for the least of these. Jesus says look to the fringes and that's where you're going to find me. Look to the outsiders. That's where you're going to find me. Look to the poor, to the oppressed. That's where I'm going to be. You cannot profess to love Jesus and refuse to help the poor, he says, or the oppressed, or the powerless, or the abused, because here is the real problem. In the Bible, Jesus says pretty clearly that he is here. God's mission is here for the poor and the oppressed. He stands up in the temple and says, I have come to proclaim good news. To whom? Not the Pharisees. It's not good news for them. It's good news for the poor and the powerless and the blind and the imprisoned. And here's the crazy thing. Younger people growing up today, they've figured this out. You'd be amazed at how many people outside the church have actually read the Bible or at least the Gospels. And they've read those passages where Jesus says, I am here my mission is for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and the outcast. And they look at the church and they're disappointed. That's why they don't feel like they need to come back. That's why they don't feel like the church matters anymore. The Barna Institute, this is a big statistical, kind of like the Pew Research Study, but specifically for uh, the Christian church, really for Protestantism. They do a lot of work around that. They did an enormous study, and they found this, that unchurched people between the ages of 22 and 37, 22 and 37. Now, notice I didn't say millennials, because we say millennials and we think of teenagers. It's not true. Millennials are almost middle-aged, okay? We're losing our hair. Unchurched people between the ages of 22 and 37 said they see Christians... This is people outside the church, the people that Jesus says we are here to reach. They see Christians as judgmental. 87% said judgmental. 85% said hypocritical. 91% said anti-homosexual. 70% said insensitive to others. The people outside the church, the people Jesus says that we are here to reach, the people that God stands in a temple and proclaims as his mission, see Christians and the church as judgmental, hypocritical, anti-homosexual, insensitive to others. Why is this the case? It's because I think the church at some point got it twisted and we, became to, we began to think that part of what we do is service and mission. It's just like this extra thing that we fit into our schedule when we can. We, for some reason, we got it twisted and began to think that our primary purpose was to build really pretty ch churches with really pretty stained glass and to, and to build up our numbers and get people to come down front and say the magic words. And we forgot that the primary purpose is God's mission and it has a church. Dead church says that serving others is an extra part of faith. I'll fit it in when I can. I'll do what I can. Whatever's left over of me, I'll give it to somebody else. You know, uh, but a Jesus-centered church says that serving is an essential part of faith. Because the people that we're here to reach right now are getting a message that we're judgmental and hypocritical and insensitive to others. And here's the cool thing, is that the people outside the church, they think that serving others is an essential part of faith as well, and that's why they're not coming to church. Because they see that disconnect. They see the church as something that does service when it can, when they want to be about missional service all of the time. 
my own faith was formed through missional service. My faith didn't come about because I went to Sunday school and heard the right lesson. So let me go ahead and ease your uh, fears about being a Sunday school teacher for the kids, right? (laughs) That's not how I came to know Jesus. I had some great Sunday school teachers. They were fantastic. I came to understand who Jesus was through my hands and my feet and through the church putting me into action and making my faith in action. I went on mission trips. In fact, it's how I know Didi before I I knew Didi. I actually knew Didi's husband, Jeff, who led the Central Texas Conference Youth in Mission. It's this big program they do every single summer where they pair up different churches. They all go off to these different living centers, and they do work in different communities for an entire week. And, and kids you know, volunteer their time. They volunteer their resources, and we go and do this. We meet other people, and we do whatever we can to be the hands and feet of Christ in that community in Texas, in Louisiana, Missouri, uh, Arkansas, um, Oklahoma. One time, I was on a mission trip, and we were in um, Arkansas, I believe it was, and um, there was another mission team. We were there every year, we thought, to do manual labor, you know, build a fence, build a wheelchair ramp, put up new sheetrock. Sheetrocking in New Orleans in July is rough. It's rough, but I've been there, and, um, and I got to know Jesus through that experience. Uh, in Arkansas, there was a team who was there. I'm sure they thought they were there to hang sheetrock or to uh, build a fence or something. That's not why they were there. Remember, Christ calls us to be radically attuned to the needs of the present. They go there, and they meet with their, their client for that week. It's this elderly man. He's like 97. Or I should say he was 96 because they found out he was turning 97 that week, on that Thursday. And then they found out. Um, uh, well, let me get to that in a second. So they go home. They go back to the living center. They say, we got to throw this guy a birthday party. 97. I mean, as a teenager, you're like, that's crazy old. Like, that's like Methuselah, that's like Bible old, right? Um, so uh, they get him a cake, at, like Walmart or whatever, and they get some candles, and um, they get party hats, they get a couple of, you know, pin the tail of the donkey, kind of just, you know, cheap party games and stuff, and they, they go and they're going to throw him a little party, and they're thinking, we'll just do this on our lunch break, and we'll have our little party, and we'll get back to doing what we're supposed to do, right? What we're supposed to do is, is do this manual labor, and they, Thursday, come around, they, they get the cake out, and they get the party games up, and they walk in with the cake with the candles um, going, happy birthday to you. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he just starts welling up with tears. And, I mean, they thought, well, I guess he really likes birthday parties, you know. Or he's scared of flames, I don't know. Um, so he blows up the candle and someone said, um, you know, sir, why, why are you crying? And he said, uh, I've never had a birthday party before. 97 years old, he never had someone throw him a birthday party before. Now, I cannot remember what that team's job was that week, but I know what their job was that week. They were attuned to the needs of the present. They gave the gift of a birthday party, cheap supplies bought at Walmart, that changed a 97-year-old man's life, that gave him joy in a way that he could only express through tears. Because some random group of snot-nosed teenagers came up from the DFW area and blessed him with a birthday party. Now, I say that to say this. When we talk about service and mission and outreach, you know, we frequently put up on display really big, enormous projects like million meal packs and the, you know, Zogay Hospital and the Russian Seminary. And those things are good and worthy and we have to be about those things. But the life of faith in Jesus Christ calls us to be aware of when a 97-year-old man just needs a birthday party. 
And guess what you can do? You can throw them a birthday party. And so when we leave these walls, we don't have to think about the big monumental issues facing our world or even our community or even our neighborhood. Stan talked in this morning about Mother Teresa and how her goal was not to reach 40,000 people. Her goal was to just impact the life of one person at a time. And let me tell you, there is one person at least coming in and out of your life every single day who, if you were attuned to the needs of the present, if I was attuned to the needs of the present, I would notice and I could do something. Maybe it's a cashier who needs someone to ask them how they're doing and to treat them kindly that day. Have you ever done that? Have you ever asked a cashier, how are you doing today? Have you seen their face light up because the last 13 people were just ticked they had to wait in line? Maybe it's the custodial staff member who no one has said thank you to all day, even though they've been cleaning up other people's messes all day in your office. Maybe it's the single mom at the grocery store whose three kids are running all over the place and making a mess, and all she needs is for some kind stranger to not give her a judgmental look, but an encouraging word. Maybe it's the homeless person you drive past every single day and you think to yourself, what are they really going to use this for? And you circle back and maybe you offer them some money, maybe you offer them a meal. Jesus is the cashier, Jesus is the custodial worker, Jesus is the single mom, Jesus is the homeless person, Jesus, I'm going to get in trouble here, Jesus is the Honduran family wondering if our country will let them in. And if you think I'm lying, I want you to read the Gospel of Matthew one more time. And I want you to realize that the reason I'm getting passionate today is because I think these choices have ramifications. I think they reveal the faith that the church really has. It reveals the faith that I really have. It reveals the faith that we really have. So I think we can't look away just because it makes us uncomfortable. Jesus is always in the places that make us uncomfortable. Jesus is the racist skinhead on the nightly news that we think, God, this world would be better without them. But Jesus says, no, you need to love that person. Jesus is the, the ex-con who's looking for a new fresh start, and rather than being scared, you step into their life, and you try to be a word of grace and hope and give them a step up. Jesus is always in the places that make us uncomfortable, and our faith can always be revealed by the way that we live our lives. We won't be saved through our actions, but we'll know the faith that we have. And so church, I am ready for the church to die just a little bit, because I don't think it's dying. I think the parts that are dead are falling away. I think a church that sees service as just an extra is falling away. I think a church that looks to blend faith and action so that it can exclude people from the table is falling away. And I think a church that is not focused on the needs of the present is falling away. But here's the deal. If we can return to this kind of faith that Christ is calling us to in Matthew 25, I believe the church will change and I believe that we will be better for it. And that's a church that I want to be a part of. I don't know about you, but that's a church that excites me for the next generations to come. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for these scriptures that stick in our side like a thorn. That discomfort us. That frustrate us. That wake us up to a new level of faith that we didn't realize we needed. God, I confess that there are people in my life that I've walked past this week. There are people in my life that I've written off. There are people in my life that I saw as less than. And you remind me that you are the least of these. 
And God, we confess that we have been an imperfect church. And only by your grace can we reach perfection in love. And so God, as we experience over the course of our lives a church that is radically changing, can we embrace the challenging and powerful wisdom that we find in the Gospels and in the New Testament that can lead us to be a church that you envisioned, a church that is relevant, is transformative, is needed in the world today. Help us to be that kind of a church, God. A church that sees the least of these. A church that serves all who come across our path. Help us to be the church in our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. So that those who see no need for the church, who are outside these walls, who are on the fringes, who are on the outside uh, looking in, wondering what the church is saying, is thinking, and most importantly is doing, that they might see us and see hope see you in us as well. All this we pray in your son's holy, precious, resurrected name. Amen.